and welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Deborah Campbell. I am a professor of creative nonfiction in the at the University of Victoria. And I'm David Leach, a former magazine editor and a professor of creative nonfiction in the Department of Writing here at UVic, along with Deborah. Uh, and I'm really excited about this this uh, episode. We're finally talking about revision and rewriting, uh, my favorite part of the, the writing process. And, and just a note that we're thinking a little bit about uh, how to revise before you actually turn things over to uh, an editor. I know uh, sometimes we, we feel like we're giving people uh, our first drafts, but I don't, I don't think any author really wants to do that. There's always that kind of work of revision before you hand things off and, and uh, let somebody else a look at it. And I always kind of think uh, about the, the writing process almost like uh, Dante's divine comedy of writing, slightly out of order perhaps, that like that pre-writing and research and looking for an idea and developing an idea is, is that kind of purgatory. You're kind of lost, you're wandering around, it, it takes a lot of time, there's, there's moments of excitement and, and moments of monotony, and then you've got to go down into the inferno, that the hell, the underworld of actually writing a, a first draft that just seems to get worse and worse and worse the the the, the deeper you dig yourself in that that uh, that horror that i talked about with first drafts and finally you come to ascending towards the paradise of revision moving up step by step uh slowly inevitably seeing the uh, light as you work towards uh perfection how does that how does that fit with your the way you see the the creative process and revision and <laughs> Well, <laughs> my my take is for me the paradise is the research and the field work and wandering around and of course you know there's all those frustrations in the pre-writing where you're you're realizing that your hazy original question was completely wrong-headed and you're revising it but it's a very inchoate time that pre-writing and so it's full of potential and beauty and uh, and this sort of uh, feeling that you're 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 really getting getting your head around things and then I sit to write my first draft and um, and I try and you know toss it down as quickly as I can and I still feel like I'm there I'm getting it it's happening and then I get to the end of the first draft and we you know we talked about it in in the in when we talked about the first draft it's often a very quick and dirty process I mean uh, at least it is for me just getting it down on the page. And then I step back and go, oh, okay. Well, so for me, I think there's this moment of disillusion that comes after the first draft where I see that um, that beautiful thing that I'd had in mind early in the pre-writing time um, is just, it's not really there. Um, so for me, I, sometimes the the revision can be some of the some of the tough part. Um, one of the ways that I think about it too, and I, I think that it's it can be really important during the first draft period to really suspend your internal critic. Um, and uh, as much as possible, at least, to just be willing to even write badly. Right, just to be willing to just get those words out on the page and not judge them. But for me, the revision part is where I bring in my internal editor and she can be, you know, pretty tough. 
I don't know, David, if you if you feel that way. I think it sounds like you have some of the internal critic going when you're when I you're think that's my big draft. problem. I cannot I have a very hard time shutting up that that very loud uh, internal uh, critic who often gets in the way of that first draft and then finally can be fully liberated uh, on on revisions. And I think the challenge of revisions is is um, I guess getting distance on that piece of writing, uh, trying to see it through new eyes, having some sense of, of clarity, um, to, to see our prose as others see it, uh, even before you are, are thinking about uh, where you're gonna publish it, though you might have gotten an assignment already, and at that point you have to think, okay, what does my audience want? What is, what is uh, uh, the purpose? And I think for me, the revision process um, allows me to bring more of a sense of focus. Uh, the, the, uh, the first draft feels all over the place. You're kind of just getting everything uh, down. But with revision, I find I can kind of work through certain elements, certain stages, and each stage see almost as you, though you're working um, from a piece of rock on a sculpture, uh, the, the vision that you originally have coming more and more clear and more precise. I almost think about revision as this um, seven layer dip. I, I kind of try and uh, teach this uh, at least the seven stages of revision to to young writers and student writers because you can't just go in and revise everything about a draft all in all in one go. So that that first stage, you're you're thinking about if you've gotten any feedback, maybe you haven't. Um, revising for for clarity, kind of going through and just trying to see it through somebody else's eyes and well, what doesn't make sense, what's what's missing here, what haven't I expressed uh, well, what are some of the questions that a reader might have, and just kind of fleshing those things out, um, uh, fixing those those elements of meaning. And then we talked about structure, and this is uh, the part where I just love the, the revising for structure, where you're you're kind of looking at that draft and pulling it apart as though it were bits of, of Lego or something and thinking about sections and chapters and how they all fit together, whether you're doing it electronically or back in the old days, kind of cutting it up and, and moving things around uh, to, to see what new juxtapositions and, and breaking up chronology can do. Uh, and then just kind of zeroing in on editing for, for logic, thinking about your overall purpose and theme and how you can draw that out and things that you can leave out as well. Because I don't think there's any point in like revising for style or grammar if you're going to pull out an entire chapter or an entire section. You've got to make those big substantive changes up front. And if you have the courage to make them uh, and, and take out um, big chunks of text, and of course, just save them, maybe they're there for another project someday, uh, you start to see the light. And then you can begin revising for style. Don't make that mistake of just kind of going in and, and um, uh, rearranging sentences and, and changing words from the get-go. You've got to have that macroscopic drone's eye view of your um, first draft before you can start kind of moving in and thinking about things like wordiness, cutting, cutting uh, out uh, words or sentences, revising for, for conciseness. Kill, kill your darlings. Maybe we'll come back to that, that dictum mm -hmm. in a second. 
and then mm-hmm. thinking about active specific language as well. Yeah. So kind of moving all the way down until you're finally kind of polishing that, that the kind of stonework that you've uh, cut away from at all of the other stages. So it's something you can, it, it may take weeks, months even, but you, there's a progress to it uh, that's, I think, a bit more clear than writing a first draft for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting how you're talking about big picture, because I think that a lot of new writers, um, and it's, it can be very tempting, you you just think, well, let's just go to the polish. Let's look for those strong verbs. Let's, um, let's uh, clean up our punctuation. And uh, uh, there's uh, a desire to start polishing the stone before we've actually really removed all the... <laughs> We've actually figured out where the where the stone is. What is the stone? And uh, so you're talking about uh, looking at it from this. Uh, you talked about the drone's eye view, and I think that 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 is for me the the question as well. Um, so the questions that I ask myself, and I think um, that editors will, will ask eventually too, is. Um, uh, why are we reading this? The, 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 the classic, so what question? How, how do we answer it? What is this story really about? Um, I think that there's an idea sometimes that writers just know what their story's about before they even write it. And in my experience, that's not necessarily the case. It just sort of emerges. And so you're, you're trying to, you know, get your head around what the heart of the story is and remove the things that are getting in the way. And so you talked about structure, which is obviously the most important part of a piece of writing and yet in some ways the least um, understood. Um, but I, I, I wondered before getting a little deeper into that, um, do you have any tips for how to see your first draft as a stranger would? I think one of the issues can be for all of us is we get so close to our piece of work that we can't actually do that drone's eye view. We're, we're, you, know, you can't see the forest for the trees, essentially. Um, do you have any tips for how to see your work as a, as a stranger would? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think you ever can completely um, recreate that experience of, of reading it uh, with new eyes. So certainly the standard tip of putting it away, putting it aside, working on something else, doing something else for, for a little bit, don't immediately kind of turn to the revision. I know that's not always a, an option if you're working on a very tight deadline as a, as a um, magazine writer. I think magazine writers especially have to be able to kind of switch between those uh, two different modes um, so quickly. Uh, trying to step back and just understand uh, who your audience is imagining yourself through their eyes, what they know already, what they want uh, to know, uh, and also maybe even recognizing your own weaknesses, your own Achilles heels as a writer. I tend to be um, a bit over fond of the sound of my own voice sometimes, a bit verbose, a bit trying to get everything uh, in. So coming down to that question that uh, you raised. I mean, there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, uh, Banff Center anthology of creative nonfiction, which I believe is titled, Why Are You Telling Me This? So mm, kind of yes. at, mm-hmm. Asking that kind of question as well at every uh, point, what is kind of driving the story. And uh, again, the wonderful thing about being able to work in a word processor 
saving multiple drafts. If you're cutting something away, it doesn't mean you're losing it. You can always come back to it as well. Uh, so being a little bit kind of ruthless uh, about removing material at that point and, and seeing uh, what emerges from it. At a certain point, though, I mean, you have to hand it over to to uh, uh, somebody else, but trying to kind of uh, get as much distance as possible. I don't know. Do you have any uh, methods for, for, for doing that, for seeing mm. your work with new eyes? Time is is uh, the best. Absolutely. I mean, even if you can just sleep on it, uh, which you can almost always do if you've got a deadline, unless it's a 24 hour turnaround, which does happen sometimes. But um, in general, you can always build in a little bit of time to sleep on it. You will always find things to change if you sleep on it. Um, and if you are writing a book, I think you actually want a few months between uh, major drafts in order to get that distance and then suddenly you look at something and you can see where it starts to sparkle and there's heat coming off the page and where your energy goes down and I often feel like where I revise is where I start feeling like it's lifeless there's something it's taking my energy away and uh and so I, I read with that kind of barometer as well to 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 see where the where the um uh, the feeling of heat is coming off the page um yeah, and, I think uh, trust, trusting that instinct as well. Sometimes I'll, I'll kind of I'll realize it's not quite working. It doesn't have energy is, is right. But I want to keep this kind of character or this interview in or this long passage of description. You're kind of holding on to something for for uh, whatever reason, even if you've got that nagging doubt. And it's kind of getting past that, asking yourself, why are you holding on to something that instinctively you feel can be removed and sometimes it's like oh I've done like a long interview that was this person I like them I spent a lot of time with them I want to keep it as much of it in even if it isn't serving the purpose of the the story at that point if the, the story's changed in, in some way yeah and you're making a really good point here that everything needs to serve the story how does it move the narrative how does it serve the narrative and if it doesn't no matter how good it is it has to go. And that's that sacrifice. You know, you're talking about killing your darlings, that that old writerly adage. Um, that's what we're talking about. And sometimes it's a little bit of preciousness with prose. And sometimes it's a little bit of that. I worked so hard to get this. I climbed Everest to get this. Therefore, it has to stay in. And if it doesn't serve the narrative, it it doesn't earn its keep. And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, so yeah, and we can fight against it. Uh, so what I find is helpful is exactly what you said, which is to save it as a new draft. You can keep the old way, but just try and cut that out and see if you can um, reconcile yourself to it. Often it just suddenly the, the energy goes up in the story and you realize, yep, yeah, I had to do this. This made sense. Um, I, I do feel like there is a little bit of a, uh, an iron law to these things, which is that the, the part you, you're most attached to is often what has to go. Uh, so we have to be prepared for those kinds of you know, internal struggles as well. 
Um, I also find sometimes printing it out actually, or using a different font can be helpful to look at it differently. I'm almost trying to trick my brain into feeling like I'm reading someone else's work so I can be a little bit more objective about it. And that kind of distance uh, helps as well. Yeah, I also recommend uh, to myself, but also students uh, reading it aloud. And I always do this at the, the style stage to hear that uh, rhythm. But even at the structure stage, you can hear things kind of bogging down a bit that isn't just kind of style that like, oh, I feel myself getting a little bit kind of bored even reciting this, this long kind of passage. Maybe it can be cut, maybe it can be condensed. Often it's a question of, of getting in and out of chapters or scenes as well we we uh, in the first draft we spend um often too much time with these entrances and exits and, and looking for that kind of sharp entry uh, and exit point and then trusting your reader to to kind of make those jumps uh, between scenes between sections and between ideas without needing to over explain things so uh, how and when do you revise for audience and for purpose? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, a, this is an interesting question because we're sometimes told to, you know, just write. We're not necessarily thinking about who we are writing for. Um, but I think with nonfiction especially, you really need to know what your reader already knows and what they think about what they know. So as we've talked about before, I've written uh, quite a bit about the Middle East. And my in my experience, people have an idea that they already know things. Uh, and because, you know, they read the newspaper or they watch the news, um, but they don't necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily know. Uh, what they think they know. And in fact, there's often a frame around a story. So I need to know what that frame around their story is if I'm going to dismantle it. So if I'm going to come at it from a different angle, if I'm going to show them something that they don't know, I have to have an awareness of what they think they know. And that means me paying attention to the conversation that's going on around the context of my story. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, making sure that I've somehow uh, taken that into consideration, whether I say, you may think this, but in fact, it's not going to be that explicit. It's going to be um, uh, a certain background information perhaps that I'm giving them to reframe the story. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking also whether I need to define my terms or not. Maybe I'm using uh, words, even like words we use here all the time, like narrative. Some people won't necessarily know what that means. So how do we take, take into consideration what our audience knows and doesn't know and work in definitions to those terms so that and at the same time, I'm also thinking, hey, I'm gonna have some pretty smart readers who really know their stuff and I don't wanna talk down to them. So I don't want to, okay, here's a classic. People will, people, I've seen this where someone will write uh, the Russian author, Leo Tolstoy. And for anyone that reads a lot, they feel a little bit talked down to if you say that. So how do you uh, take into consideration maybe 
not everyone knows who Tolstoy is, but at the same time, not make people feel like you're treating them like it's a for dummies. So I'm thinking about all, all of those things. Um, often when I'm writing for audience, I'm building in some historical context. Um, and uh, this, comes, this comes back to, you know, we we're talking about structure and how we think about in revision, in what order do we place things? Um, so for me, the most important part of a story is the, the lead. Why? Because that's your, your door into the story. And if someone doesn't read the lead, um, the, the start of a story, um, they're not going to continue. But um, where I have historical context to make sense of what I'm talking about, usually that would come after the lead. I might sort of work in some history, some context. Um, and that might come in different sections too. We might need a little bit of history when I use a certain term or when I discuss uh, some, some uh, issue, maybe inside of a scene, I might even need some history because otherwise the reader, I'm gonna lose them, right? And anytime you lose your reader, you risk them putting down your piece of work and it not come and then, then not coming back, right? And people are so distractible um, I was going to say, I, I, I hate, the, hate the phrase a bit, but we, we exist in this attention economy. Uh, and as a writer, you're kind of operating that way. You've got to grab somebody's interest. You've got to make them want to keep reading. So that, that importance of a, a strong, dramatic, intriguing, challenging lead to draw them in. And then you've got a little bit of, of kind of, I don't know, a little bit of um, extra lead on your, on your fishing line to kind of, okay, we're going to slow down and and give you some background, but I'm still going to be teaching you stuff uh, here and, and, and filling uh, things in and then boom back into that, the rhythm of, of that drama moving between scene and summary exposition and, and dialogue. And I think uh, also the question of purpose, we, we, we might have this larger purpose for any piece, uh, but at the level of revision, you're constantly bearing down what is the purpose of this particular chapter? What is this pr purpose of this particular section? even what is the purpose of this particular interview and scene and how am I kind of revising to bring that purpose forward and, and not muddy it by going off in other directions or, or including material that, that distracts from it. And there, I think it really helps you to kind of revise your own thinking uh, about a, a work of nonfiction as well. And of course, there could be multiple purposes, but uh, too many will, will kind of drive your reader uh, to distraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about I think about that in in regard to uh, someone making a film, right? You talk about the cutting room floor, all the parts of it that don't get in. I mean, I feel like in a in a big piece of researched nonfiction that maybe ninety percent of it might not actually show up on the page. I mean, maybe it's only fifty percent that's gone. But I feel like often I had to know that stuff to have the understanding to choose what should be in it. Uh, I don't know how you feel about the, the, the relationship between the material and what ends up on the page, but I feel like a lot of it um, is just the, 
the substructure of the work. Sure, that whole iceberg principle where you've got to have that that base of kind of 90% of the other kind of facts and interviews that you've done that give you the confidence in the 10% that, that appear uh, on the page that this is the most important, most purposeful, maybe even most memorable uh, material. I often uh, talk to my students about the Kamutsu details, CM, uh, CMTSU. And they're like, oh, what does that, that mean? It's it's those, the especially for nonfiction and especially for nonfiction in this surreal world in which we live, these can't make that shit up details that, mm. that really stand out that you've kind of gathered and um, whether they're representative or not, just kind of stick in the mind, whether it's a detail of character or place or situation, these these facts that are so intriguing that uh, they'll hold your reader's attention and that will be something they'll they'll remember uh, even uh, several chapters on or several other articles on i'll remember mm. that kind of fact that he included uh, and that will in many ways be a gateway back into their memory of the story as well yeah absolutely and and so we we end up gathering all this material and then, you know, the sort of sad, difficult part is the fact that we cannot put it all in. And the, I think there is sometimes an impulse, almost like a hoarding impulse to want to put it all in. And in fact, um, then your reader just feels like they're in a really, really, really messy house and they don't know where to sit down. Um, and, and they also, they leave that with no real memory, actually, because you, you gave them t too much. Absolutely. Well, maybe that brings it down to also revising for style. And this could, style, of course, can be an entire uh, separate podcast uh, episode. But just even at the basics, as you're kind of stripping away excess words, it does allow you to save a bit more of that material, save a few more kind of uh, facts if you're not in this kind of mess of transitional phrases or vague adjectives or weak verbs. At what point are you kind of bringing that attention to style? Are you always thinking about style or you step back and think, okay, this is it, I'm going in, uh, I'm gonna kill my darlings and by darlings, it's these kind of excess phrases. And maybe they're not even darlings because I think when you're editing for style, you're, you're finding things that are just um, sloppy first draft writing uh, cliches that come to mind and allow you to get from one sentence to the next, uh, extra transitional phrases, or even syntax. I think revising for syntax is, is so important because we often back into an idea or back into a sentence and there's a more direct path uh, into it that uh, eliminates some of this verbiage and clarifies meaning. How about you? How do you approach revising for style within the kind of uh, other layers of revision? Yeah, I think style is often what we pay attention to uh, as writers. And I know that that's not like what the reader thinks of. The reader thinks, wow, that imagery, that's amazing. Or the reader uh, thinks, oh, what a what a what an unusual metaphor. Uh, but when I'm thinking about style, it's things that I noticed or the way that I think. And I think that that's almost like a writer's personality. Style is like their personality. So how do you eliminate the distractions? How are you, how can you be more clear? Um, I, I, I look a lot for cliche. I think cliche 
it can be just familiar ways of saying something like um, we say high as a kite or uh, sang like a bird or um, uh, smoking like a chimney. These things we've heard so many times. And I find that when you use cliche, the brain goes to sleep. The reader's brain goes to sleep. When you use a new way of saying something that they've never heard before, their brain wakes up and that's about that energy going up or going down. So I'm looking, I'm looking to eliminate cliche and I'm also looking to eliminate cliche in ideas. Certain ideas are so well trodden that we almost don't need to trot them out again. Um, we can come up with a new way of framing an idea that, that the reader hasn't necessarily pondered before. And again, that sort of wakes them up. Um, so I think those things actually play into style as well. The idea that I'm not going to waste my reader's time on um, an old uh, an old hat. It's almost getting... a sense a sense of boldness as well. You're trusting your reader to make that jump from uh, a comparison to a startling new image, rather than kind of be satisfied with that standard dead metaphor or be challenged by a new idea that that might cause them to kind of pause and disagree with you rather than than trotting out conventional wisdom as well so there's a certain kind of uh trust uh to to your reader as well but a boldness that you're you're trying to draw out of your writing and respect for the reader too i do i do sometimes feel like in our climate of dumbing down that there is um, a disrespect for those who read, those who read right now, those who read books, who read in-depth articles, uh, in-depth essays, are, it's, to be honest, a self-selecting group. And I want to respect them as being intelligent and, um, and give them some pleasure in that too. There's such a, there is a real intellectual pleasure in making those leaps. But of course you have to make sure that the springboard is there, right? You can't just throw, uh, throw out your brilliant idea without the leading them to, to that conclusion. Help, this is another thing that I look for and, and think about too with revision is, are my judgments earned? Did I show, if I'm making a judgment, if I'm coming to a conclusion, if I'm, even if I'm, so even take the small thing of judging, um, uh, maybe judging is, is too strong a word, but portraying someone. If I say, uh, she's an angry person, I'm making a judgment. If I show her on the page berating uh, a server at a restaurant, because I saw that, then I allow the, I'm respecting the reader to make up their own mind about how my character is portrayed. Instead of judging the character and essentially shutting out the reader, and saying, you're not smart enough to figure this out. I'm not going to give you any evidence for it. Um, I'm just going to do the judging here. So I think there's that, you know, pulling back and trying to see how, how can I give my reader the ability to, to see what I'm seeing without getting in their head and telling them how to think about it. And that's, what, that's part of that 
respect, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. It's almost like, how do you, how are you inviting them more deeply into the story? How are you inviting them to co-create uh, meaning by kind of observing these behaviors that you describe and then coming to their own uh, judgments about kind of putting together these ideas and then allowing them to kind of react to them and, and come to the decisions? Uh, so so let me ask you uh, one question then. So you're, we're talking about how to, you know, inspire conclusions in our in our readers but how do you conclude uh, a piece of writing I mean how, what is the role of the con conclusion for you and unlike the you know the essay classic academic essay where you basically summarize everything you've done and you know tie a bow around it yeah it's it's one of the toughest things and um uh, and it's uh, like the lead, I'll often kind of revise the conclusion over and over again and moving back and forth uh, to, to the middle because uh, there could be kind of multiple ways uh, to pull it together and you don't want that just obvious uh, repetition. So uh, experimenting, uh, I think, experimenting and, and it's better to end on a scene, on some kind of moment, uh, on an image. I don't know if I have like um, uh, a clear answer to that other than to say uh, I know it when I've written it. There's the, yeah. there the, the language because it's going to be uh, the thing, uh, the words that a reader most remembers. And I can remember books that just didn't end as well as the rest of them were. I was like, oh, and they, they, you don't want to leave that that a bad taste in their in their their mouth so the, the language needs to be uh precise and and uh satisfying as well uh, i don't know if that answers uh, the question but it's it's uh again thinking about the purpose as well and how are you drawing these elements together maybe tied yeah. tied to that as well how do you know when to stop revising is there the risk of like revising the life out of your can the the draft like removing the life force uh from it just because you've kind of polished it to such a, a glassy uh surface i mean i know some students feel that's a threat and maybe some writers as well when do you know that okay i, I can stop revising or can you ever stop revising well, I, I definitely think you can revise the life out of things. I'm sure as you've probably seen too, sometimes it's easier to see things in others than in oneself. But uh, sometimes when students hand in their revisions, you see, oh, they, they took out that beautiful raw mystery. They, they polished it off. They, they polished it so smooth that I can't see that thing that was, you know, calling out to me in the early draft and I think that's where perfectionism can be a real obstacle um, there's this quote from Nietzsche that I think about uh, sometimes which is be careful in casting out your devils that you don't cast out the best thing that's in you and I think about that with revision because even if something's really in the rough uh, sometimes if you overfix it, it's like having a, a really good friend and they are eccentric. If you fix their eccentricities, you, you probably get rid of that part of them that's, <clears throat> that's why you love them. 
so I do think you can over polish. Definitely. Again, this is why keeping those early drafts is really important. You know, it's, it's the life of a piece of work that is what moves it from, you know, good to great. It's the feeling of uh, a little bit of wildness in it. So uh, one has to manage the wildness so that it doesn't destroy the, 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 the room you're building, but um, at the same time know that there's something, there could be something beautiful lost if you smooth out every edge. Yeah, I love that thought. Or to, to misquote Thoreau in Wildness is the preservation of the word. And I think that fits well with my, my Dante comparison as well. I mean, kill your darlings, but maybe save some of those demons and, and devils from that, that raw struggle of the, the first draft. It, it, there's some kind of energy there that needs to be um, preserved. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good a good note to end on while we still have our some of our raw energy. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> th Correct. Thanks so much, David. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Deborah, and and happy revisions, everyone. <laughs>